appreciated that. Good morning. All right. Gold star for you guys coming on a rainy day. Praise God. Uh, man, LJ, thank you. Great announcements. I actually had two quick things uh, to share with you. They're, they're basically prayer reports or, or praises. So the first is just we rejoice with the Case family. Uh, Bobby and Lauren had baby number five, and so little Lila Case was born. So praise the Lord. We want to love on them and support them. Uh, if you are able, later today we'll post uh, a meal link for making meals for them through our Mana Ministry on our Facebook page. So hopefully you can check that out and we can just love on them and support them in that way. The second is a prayer request. So just continued prayer. Our good brother Azer, who um, helps with our youth and leads worship, I shared last Sunday, he ended up getting a, a serious infection in his throat, and then it went to his lungs, and then it moved to his heart. Um, the praise is that he's improving, uh, and it looks like he might be able to uh, come out of the hospital this week. And so please continue to pray for him. Uh, we praise the Lord that he's healing well. Initially, it was, he was supposed to be there a month, um, so we're, we rejoice in that. But, you know, just, just spiritually wise, he's kind of a little down, and um, so we want to just pray for him uh, and his family as well. So I, I've shared before, his, his dad's a good friend of mine, pastor at Calvary Chapel Manila. Uh, his, his mom and dad watch us online as well sometimes, and so we want to just lift them up um, this week, okay? All right. Uh, other than that, let's jump right in. I have a lot to cover. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13, if you have a Bible, if you need to borrow one, most of you guys know the routine. You just wave at, at LJ and Evan. LJ's doing it all today. Extra, extra tips for you, brother. All right. Hebrews 13, we are, we got two more messages, we got this message and the next Sunday, then we'll be done with this great letter. Hope that you've enjoyed our time through it. After that, as LJ mentioned, we'll have uh, two Sundays, Palm Sunday, it's a special message. Easter, of course, we're going to look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ and celebrate uh, what the Lord has done for us. And I hope that you can hang out afterwards too, just for the luncheon. It's always a great time. And a great opportunity to invite your friends and family and your neighbors, your coworkers, And so we'll be doing that. And then we'll, we'll be moving into the book of James uh, after Easter, okay? But for today, verses 7 through 17, uh, that's a big chunk for me. Uh, most of you guys know. And so I'm going to try to move quickly through that. By entitled our, our message, I took it right out of the text out of verse 9, established by grace, established by grace, all right? I'm going to invite you to stand with me if you don't mind. Uh, I won't read all 17 verses, I'll just read a couple, and then we'll, just as a way of intro, we'll pause, we'll, we'll pray again, and then we'll get into it. All right, the writer says, verse 7, remember those who rule over you, spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct, and he seems to pivot, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Amen. He says, don't be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it's good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who've been occupied with them. And then he reaches back to an Old Testament picture again. He says, for we have an altar which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood was brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin, well, they're burned outside of the camp. He says, therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. And here's an application. Therefore, 
Let's go forth to him. Let's draw close to the Lord. Of course, that's our whole series, drawing near to the Lord outside the camp, bearing his reproach. All right, we'll pause there. Let's pray and uh, we'll jump in. Father, thank you for the morning. So grateful for a full house today, even in the rain. Lord, God, just bless our church body. Lord, I want to pray. we want to pray for Azer today, that you encourage him, heal him, comfort him. Father, we pray for those who are traveling, for those who are deployed. We ask that you would be with them, keep them safe, especially today on the Lord's Day. May they find opportunity to draw close to you. God, we continue to lift up the Ukraine, Russia, and all that's happening in that part of the world for world leaders, for wisdom, for peace, for your purposes and plans to be done. And Lord, together we just praise you for baby Lila, for the Case family. God, we ask that you bless them in a special way today. And then, Lord, as we uh, roll through these verses, help us to understand, help us to apply, help us to live out your love in the community of faith. It's in Jesus' name we ask and pray these things together. Amen. 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 Take a moment, say hello, high five, elbow bump, whatever you are doing these days. If you were with us last week or you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, especially chapter 13, we mentioned how it, it seems to start just rapidly, almost a, a random list of things that we as Christians should be doing. I mentioned to you that the writer had spent 12 chapters, and rightly so, it's good, to remind us of who Jesus is, how he's greater than anything and everything, to remind us what Christ has done for us. And then in light of who God is and what God has done, then we can see who we are and what God has provided for us. And then he swings to what should we do in light of all that God is and in light of all that God has given us. Here's our response. It's, it's how we're to live out this love of God in our lives. And, and we noted together that it's just kind of like this uh, random, seemingly random grocery list of things for us to do. And you know, it's really measurable marks of the Christian life. Not all of them, but some of them. And he began with that we should have genuine love for each other, that brotherly love continue, right? We're to love not just in word, but in deed and help people when we need to help them. He talked about having hospitality, that our love isn't uh, exclusive just for us as Christians, but the love of God is to be shared with others and to be kind to strangers. It, we should be inclusive, not exclusive. And so to be reaching out, he talked about then we, there should be some empathy, and empathy that's actionable. We think about prisoners, we think about the persecuted, uh, and, and we, we took that principle and we said, you know, we should, we should think about anybody who's away from fellowship for a while. It's uh, certainly them, that's the context, but, but to notice if the people haven't been around, like how are they doing, and, and, and not just care for them, but reach out to them. We noted how he said, listen, we, we should be those that esteem biblical marriage, um, honoring the family as God designed it. We wouldn't be those that embrace and endorse a, a sinful lifestyle, but certainly there's space here that we would promote and practice forgiveness and restoration, but really with the goal of purity 
and honoring our spouses and our families. And then he talked about how we, our, our value system shouldn't look like the world's. You know, the currency of our faith isn't the currency of the world. Ours is relationship. And so we shouldn't chase after the things that the world is chasing after, but, but to learn to be content. And ultimately, he talked about how our contentment really comes when we know the Lord and being content in Christ. The idea that we should invest in the bank of heaven. You might be worried about your stocks or how your cryptocurrency is doing. God says, hey, buy heaven's Bitcoin. That's the idea. Let's invest there. And now added to this list, we get to verse 7, and the writer adds to this list this endeavor for us to pursue, these things for us to practice. What, what are we called to do as part of our living out God's love and community? And he moves, in a sense, from the general to something very specific. He, he moves, if you will, from outside of the church walls inside to the church walls. And he says in verse 7, the beginning of that verse, he says, remember those who rule over you. Now that sentence in itself uh, has a lot of application if it's just left by itself. That word for rule, it means to have position of authority or influence. The author is going to specify which group. Who, who are we exactly to remember or honor or, or to esteem? What, what group of rulers are we to do that with? But ultimately, you know that 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 sentence by itself could stand alone, and and the writer could have left it that way, that God wants us to be a people. If we name the name of Jesus, that we should be those that give honor where honor is due, to give respect for those who are in places and positions of influence and an authority over us. I mean, just Romans chapter 13, if you're familiar with that, that letter, that chapter, if not, just uh, I had first service read it, but I went a little over. So I'll just, for you guys, mark it. You can read it later. But it's chapter 13, verses 1 through 8 specifically, that we're called to, to respect and honor the authorities that God has given us. And, and God reminds us, ultimately, it's God who places them in authority. And then later on, he says, and do that for all. And so as we read this, we can think, oh, maybe the writer's talking about that. But as we continue to read, we realize, no, he, he's talking about a specific group. And so I want to note these three distinctives of this particular group of leaders that God is calling us to remember and honor. He says, those who've spoken the word of God to you, whose faith that we follow, and considering the outcome of, of conduct, their conduct, that's the idea. And so what group are we then to uh, give honor to and respect to and to remember? Well, it's those who have spoken the word of God to us. We are told, we are instructed to recognize and honor leaders amongst us in our life who, who have labored in the word of God, who have taught us and instructed us specifically in the word of God. Now, the original audience, most of them being Jewish would understand that God had ordained a structure of authority and leadership from the Old Testament. There's a high priest, there are priests, there are Levites, there was an order, there was a structure. And when you get to the New Testament, realize that, that God has also ordained a, a structure of leadership for His church. And in many places we read 
Ephesians is one where Paul tells that church twice in Ephesians 1.22 and 5.23 that in the church, Jesus is the head. He is the head of the church. We, we are the body of Christ. And, and ultimately, if you've been around here for a bit, you might have heard me say, Jesus is really our senior pastor. I'm one who believes that as God has uh, given me this tremendous privilege to serve, that I am really just an under-shepherd, that Jesus, if you will, is our chief shepherd. And so in this leadership structure, then, what's a distinctive of those who then are called to lead us? Well, it's a faithfulness to teach the Scripture. It is a benchmark for biblical leadership that God has established. When Paul writes to Timothy and Titus and he gives this characterization of who the leader should be, it includes able to teach, apt to teach, being a workman not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Even Timothy, as a young pastor, Paul tells him, hey, Timothy, you need to be ready at any time, in season and out of season, to preach the word. And to do so with, with conviction, to do so correcting, instruction, instructing, even reproving and rebuking, but to do so with gentleness. And to do so in honoring of the Lord with careful instruction. Careful instruction. And so why this emphasis upon exposition? I mean, why do we, as we gather, spend a good chunk of our time going through the scriptures, reading, seeking to understand the meaning, and hopefully grab an application for us? Because God himself has ordained this. This is the, the primary way in which you and I together, we grow in the grace of God. We grow in the knowledge of the Lord. We, we get to glorify him. And so that is why we give attention, a careful and a lot of attention to the exposition of, of God's Word. Now, I have heard some pastors, and you have too, and teachers, who they are, they are dynamic communicators. They speak eloquently, with passion. I, I envy some of them because they're able to move around from the pulpit. Like, I feel like this is my Linus blanket sometimes here. And I have to stay a little bit close to my notes because, you know, we translate into Japanese in real time, and so if I go too far off, they'll come out of the curtain and beat me, so, you know. <laughs> but you've seen them, I have too, these dynamic speakers, and yet what happens, you listen to them, and not all, but their content's not scriptural. You know, it, their message is a mix of, like, pop psychology or... or their opinion about the latest, you know, uh, uh, book on personality traits or what the political climate is and their thought or, you know, for me, I feel like, oh, it's, it's, like, a, it's like spiritual cotton candy. It's real fluffy, but there's no, there's no substance there. And even after I'm done, I kind of feel like I'm still hungry. You know? I'm still, there's something lacking you know, it's stories with just a garnish of the gospel. Church, I'm going to say this in love. We, you and me, we, we should not settle for anything less 
than a faithful teaching of the Word of God. You know, far more than, than people's opinions and their commentary on popular culture or a Christian version of a TED Talk. Like, we, we want to be. We need a value. And as we're told, we're to, to honor and support those who, who give us the Word of God. And there's a little part of this that's uncomfortable for me because I realize this is part of my role and responsibility. But I do, this is what I do want to be remembered for. You know, I, when you think of me, if the Lord should tarry and I pass away or, you know, when you leave or whatever, you, you remember Rick, you're like, oh, man, more than just my rugged good looks <laughs> and my jokes. You'd be like, man, that Rick guy, he just taught the word. Simply taught the scripture simply. And if I can do that, then man, I, that, that's a good legacy. But you notice he doesn't just stop there. It's not just those who speak the word of God to us, but it's faith that we can follow and it's conduct that we can evaluate. See, godly leadership is not solely defined by the ability to explain biblical texts. Well, that's important. That's a big part of it. But right alongside, it needs to be accompanied by a godly character and a conduct and a genuine faith. Again, Paul, who writes to Timothy in that same letter, 1 Timothy, he says to Timothy, my paraphrase, hey, Timothy, don't let anybody sweat you just because you're recently out of the youth group. Don't, don't let anyone look down upon you because you're younger. But here's, here's how you approve yourself. It's through, be an example through your conduct, through your speech, not just his teaching, but the things that he said, the jokes that he told. Be an example of how you love people, of your faith and of your purity. That's how you example it. That, that, that's as, as important as being ready in season and out of season to teach the word. In other words, guys, godly conduct and godly character matters as much as the message. And certainly within a church, it matters as much as the message delivery. But if I can, for us, just make it a principle, I think that's true for all of us. We, we need to be able to walk the talk. That our life would have an equal sign to the things that we profess or that we believe. Are we living out these things? Now, context is those who have this charge, those who... God is placed in a place of leading us and, and, and loving us, instructing us. What are we called? What are, what's our response? What are we called to do? Well, we remember them, the idea of honoring them, supporting them. But he says, follow. Whose faith follow? And so there's an element where we, God has given our leaders as an example that we can follow them that we join them in the endeavor of expanding God's kingdom, not their kingdom, not my kingdom, not Calvary kingdom, the kingdom of God. And, and, and we support leaders. But again, notice there's an important qualifier, considering the outcome of their conduct. We're to do that, but not blindly. Not without discernment, not without some evaluation. 
See, our charge, your charge, really is to watch and to weigh out not only my words, but my ways. Of who I am, or any pastor, or any leader, who they are on a platform and a pulpit, and then who they are outside of that. And so our charge really is to esteem, but with evaluation. Because who I am outside of the church and who our leaders are outside of the church is just as important as to what they declare at the pulpit. Now we also understand, you know, uh, pastors and leaders are just regular people just like us. If you hang out with me for longer than a day, then you'll know I, I need to pray for Pastor Rick a little bit more. But I, I realize, man, I, there's times where I, you know, I run into people and, and it's, a good, it's a good heart check for me, <laughs> I think that's part of the reason why God allowed me to be a pastor. If not, I'd be, you know, in jail or somewhere. Right? Oh, it's not any notes. But so one time, uh, this is this is years ago. So some of you might remember before Rycom Mall existed, it was the Owasi Golf Course, okay. and there was a road between the part of the golf course and where the restaurant was, and. You would start at the restaurant, and then there would be a pathway across the road to get to the rest of the golf course. And so people would be in golf carts and walking. And so one day, I was running late, um, and I was on that road, and I was just, you know, making my way. And, and all of a sudden, I see a group get to the line, and nobody's, you know, I'm a few cars behind, and I can see these other cars going, and no one's stopping for them. And I thought, ah, I'm not either. But... I thought, oh, I should, I should stop. I'm running late, but I should stop. So, you know, I thought, I'll just be nice. So I end up stopping. As, I'm, as I stop and as this group comes across the thing, all of a sudden I see a guy from our church. He's like, hey, it's Pastor Rick. And the group that he's with, he's like, that's my pastor. Look, he stopped for us. You know, I'm like. <laughs> I thought, thank you, God, that I stopped, you know. <laughs> And our, our spiritual leaders, uh, they're not perfect. So we should extend grace and forgiveness. But there's an evaluation, you know, a, a lifestyle of faith and the fruit of the Spirit, it should be evidenced in their private lives, their daily lives, not, not just who they, who they present to be at a pulpit or in a platform. Again, you know, I... I have heard and read, and you have too, these pastors and Christian leaders and those who have tremendous influence and a following social media. They have these large ministries, maybe even amazing communicators, even great teachers. But all of a sudden, something happens, and you know, they're, they're exposed. There's a crack in their character. Their conduct is questionable. They had this secret private life, but all of a sudden it, get, it, it gets exposed. And their outward persona, oh, it looks great. Their presentation, it was polished, but all of a sudden, you know, the veneer that's pulled back and you, and you have an insight, there's spiritual degrade of discipline, erosion and corrosion of character. So we, we have this charge. We're to esteem, but we do so with evaluation. We're to watch and weigh not only words, but also our leader's ways. Verse 8, he then 
seems like a very abrupt change of thought. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. That's a great verse. And that verse by itself, I could probably preach several messages on. The depth of the meaning of that verse, the impact of that verse, the implication of that verse, what it means for your life and mine. The fact that God doesn't change. That Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That his love for you doesn't change. His grace for you doesn't change. Regardless of what we do or we don't do, God doesn't change his love for you. All the promises in God are yes and amen. God is immutable, the Bible says. Culture changes, times change, churches change, pastors change. Even you know, what scientists are proclaiming, that can change. But God doesn't change. Jesus doesn't change. The Word of God doesn't change. But why do we find it here? Why, why is it sitting here in the middle of this text and this discussion? Here's what I submit. I submit to you because the writer knows no matter how awesome and godly devoted to the gospel that our earthly leaders and under-shepherds may be, as I mentioned earlier, they are just people. They are flawed. They are sinful. Just like you, just like me. And so while it's important to hold spiritual leaders in a proper place of honor and respect, there's a limit. We should not look to them as our supreme example. We should not allow our faith to be dependent or built upon who they are or their ministry, that movement. We're, we're, to, we're to esteem with uh, evaluation, but at the same time, we're not to e- elevate our spiritual leaders to a place that God does not want them to be. And sometimes people do that. Listen, we, we can love and support. There are people who have discipled us, poured into us, given of their time and energy, walked with us through hard things. And yeah, so let's love them. Let's support them. But understand, too, they are not the Lord. And so verse 8 reminds us who is. <laughs> who, who is our senior pastor? Who, who are we? Who is always faithful? Who is always available? The Lord is. And so when you add to that, verse 9, don't be carried about then with various and strange doctrines. Again, that sentence by itself has a lot of implication. He'll give it some direction as he continues. He says, for it's good for the heart to be established in grace. Amen. He says, but not by food, not by these rules of what you can and cannot eat, he says they don't profit anybody, and people are consumed with that. They're, they're, you know, they have the wrong emphasis. The, the author adds this warning to the discussion about how we live out God's love in the community of faith. And the warning is, hey, be careful that you don't get swept up and swept away by, by false doctrine. Because the idea is that it could happen. In fact, This warning, and probably a version of it, appears in almost every letter in the New Testament. It was a real thing. And the early early church 
uh, false doctrine and teachings you know, existed. And guess what? They prevail to this day. In fact, some of them that circulate today are just a repackage of the same ones from before. In context, remember the writers writing to, even why the letter is called Hebrews, it was, it was Jewish believers. Today we call them Messianic Christians. They come out of um, Judaism. They believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Even in that process, there's a little bit of a struggle. They're used to tradition. We talked about how it was, it was God-given, so it wasn't as though you know, it was completely false or something else. It was something that God established. It honored the Lord. But what was happening was there were those who were going around and saying, and they call them Judaizers, who go around and say, listen, okay, you can believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but that's not good enough. For you to really honor God, for you to really know who God is, you still have to follow the, the Old Testament law. You still have to adhere to what Moses gave in what you eat, in the day in which you worship, and, and to be, guys, to be circumcised. And, and so they would, they would go around and say, listen, we still need to do these things, these external, these rules and rituals. It's do that plus believe in Jesus. And today there are still groups that go... And come to you and say, oh, it's great that you're a Christian. It's great that you believe in Jesus, but you need to do this. There's still things that we have to follow. You still have to obey the Sabbath. There's still certain foods that you can't eat. Certain things that you still need to do. And it's so interesting to me how there seems to be this, this focus on food. You know, in the Gospels, you know, Jesus says, it's not what goes into us that defiles us. It's what comes out of us. And I submit to you, it's a terrible misunderstanding. Whether deliberate or not, and twisting, really, of the Gospel. I mean, one of the main reasons why the Spirit-inspired Paul the Apostle to write the book of Galatians. And if you've been with us in Hebrews, you know even the book of Hebrews has a lot of emphasis on this. Letting the Hebrews know they don't have to live like Hebrews anymore. But Paul confronts what's false and he confirms what's true. And it's a little bit kind of harsh words as he writes in Galatians, in chapter 3 especially. He has an interesting language. He's like, who put you under a spell? Like, who's bewitched you? Why, why do you think, this is my paraphrase, he says, why do you think that when you got saved by God's grace, believing in Jesus, right, Christ alone and faith alone and grace alone, that you came to the gospel, you came to faith through that door and that mode, that all of a sudden God says, you know what, I'm going to now make you have to follow these rules. 
And so he asks a little bit of a rhetorical question. He says, are you, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, that you think that you now are going to be made perfect by your flesh, by following this, these rules and regulations, your, your own human efforts? King, if I can condense it in one sentence, for us, it, it, listen, we, for us to be not carried away, it means that we need to be centered then, grounded in the Word of God and on the person of Jesus Christ. To be students of, lovers of the Word. Reading, living, loving and I want to say this in love, it's important that we understand this. Because I just had a conversation yesterday with a brother who said this other guy came to him, was challenging him, telling him like, oh, you have to obey the Sabbath and you can't eat pork. I'm like, no. God, God is in his grace. We can have cheeseburgers. Bacon cheeseburgers. Right? It's a distortion of the gospel to think that that. Our spiritual growth is going to come, our maturity is going to come by our strict adherence to rules and regulations. Now listen, we, we follow in love. We talked before, right? Our obedience, and that's why I think last week I, I took some time to make sure we understand when we're called to do these things, it's not that, oh, we do them in our own strength. It, it is responding to the love of God, empowered by His Spirit. But I understand it, right, in our flesh, right? The, the religious system is appealing to our ego and our flesh. Because generally, we like sense of accomplishment. At least I do. Like, I, anybody here a list maker? Like, I'm a, I, I like, you know, yes. Sometimes I'll make lists of my lists just so I can have extra boxes to check, right? There's a part of me, you know, some of you guys have been in my house. I live in an apartment, so I'm grateful that I don't have a, a, a yard anymore. Especially in Okinawa, right? Because you mow it, and the next day, it's, you know, it's, it's the jungle again. Right? There's a part of me that misses it. But just the sense of accomplishment. When I'm done, I'm like, yes, look at this. Like, that, that appeals to us, right? We like performance reviews. We like to know where we rank. Like we, we like to see progress, measurable. Look where I was last year, look where I am now. Like that appeals to us. Especially, you know, when we compare ourselves to other people. And there's a part of that I think it's healthy. We want to spur each other on. We talked about that before, right? To spur each other on to good works and deeds and love. But ultimately, when it comes to faith, though, uh, we're not in competition with each other. We talked about that before. In fact, we shouldn't be measuring ourselves against ourselves. The Bible, and even Paul says, I don't even measure myself against myself. Because what does Romans tell us? The measurement is we, we all fall short of the glory of God. Here's God's standard. Where do you and I measure? Huh. We are in great deficit. It's a futile endeavor for us to try to live them by the law. We understand that God gave the law for the whole purpose of showing us how fall we short. How fall we short? How short we fall. It, it doesn't provide strength. It doesn't provide vitality. Paul tells the Corinthian church, by the letter of the law came death. 
but the Spirit brings life. Okay, how, do, how do we, what gives us life in the Lord? How do we experience growth in God? He tells us here that your heart be established by grace. By grace. It's grace that saved you. It's grace that sustains you. It's grace that will be there. We receive it. We bask in it. We share it. It's through grace we understand it's not religion. You've heard that saying, right? It's not religion. It's relationship. It's God's grace, that unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor of the Lord. And the writer says, to be concerned then with adhering to expired rules, it's a waste of time. It's unprofitable for those who've been occupied with them. It yields no profit. And then again, there's this interesting place he brings the reader. Verse 10, for we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood was brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin, they're burned outside of the camp. It can be confusing. Like, what are you talking about? Unless we go back and read the entire letter, you know, in context we understand, oh, the writer has been talking about this already. It's a it's a theme that he's been bringing in Hebrews, mentioning the temple, the priests, the sacrificial system, the furniture and the fixtures, how all of that was symbolic, that it, it was established. God gave it, but God gave it with an expiration date. If you're with us before, you might have, you know, we use that term, a, a planned obsolescence. Certain things that you and I have that they don't last forever, right? Like you've got to buy batteries, you've got to get new light bulbs. They have a, a time, they have a shelf life, and then when they're done, you've got to get something new. And, and the Old Testament system, the way of worship was like that. God designed it that way. When Paul writes the Galatians, he, he, he describes it as, a, as an elementary school teacher. It's a tutor that taught us, but until Christ came, then, then we're released to faith in Christ. It lasts for a while, but it has to be replaced. It's a temporary road. Jesus comes and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so the writer is reminding them, though, and he, and he says an interesting phrase, we, we then have this altar. By those who then are at the tabernacle, they, they don't have a right to come to this altar, which is really curious, because it was those who continued, who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah who would say to the group that was following the Lord, basically, you're blocked from us. Right? It was first century cancel culture. Or you want to go follow Jesus as the Messiah, then you can't come to the temple. We're going to revoke your card. You have no more privilege here. And so they were, they were kind of excommunicated from community, from worship, from going to the temple. But here the author reminds them in us, 
in a sense, it's okay. We have an altar. We, we have a place that we can come and worship and experience God. In fact, they are the ones who can't come. They've barred themselves off. But how do they bar themselves off? The writer doesn't tell us here, but we know from previously, the reason why is because they refused to believe who Jesus was. They they kept to a rigid uh, religion, and they rejected the Messiah. And so by that act, the fact that they say, well, we don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that they deny then that his sacrifice atoned for all their sins. So the writer says, we have an altar. When I read that, I'm like, where's this altar? Can you pin drop it to me? Can we get there? We realize, oh, he, he's speaking about spiritual things. Because he explains. For the bodies of those animals whose blood was brought into the sanctuary of the high priest for sin, they're burned outside of the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, here's the application, let us go to him. Jesus is our altar. Outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Again, for the original audience, they'd be tracking, they understand, oh, in the temple, there were several altars. And each altar had a particular function or purpose. There was the altar of showbread, where the baked bread was, the altar of incense, where you know, the incense would be burned as representing prayers. There was the brazen altar, basically like a giant barbecue grill. There is the bronze laver where people would wash. And all of those things pointed us to Christ. And the writer had told us the furniture and the fixtures are symbols of faith, and now they're replaced by faith in Christ. So we don't need those things. And not only were the fixtures and furnitures symbols, but even the process, the whole system was symbolic. The procedure was prophetic. See, in the Old Testament, with the different types of offerings, there was also different procedures based upon those different offerings. They weren't all conducted the same way. Some of them, like the burnt offering, you give the whole thing, and the whole thing went on the barbecue, and the whole thing went up. Some of them you brought to the priest, and they would put part of it and burn it. Part of it they would obviously use the word barbecue, cook. Some of it was given to the priest and some of it was given back to you. And there would be this time where you could, you know, have barbecue. And so what is he talking about? What is the writer talking about? The, The bodies of these sacrifices that weren't brought in, they're burnt outside the camp, yet the blood is brought in. Again, the original audience would be tracking. I'll just tell you, he's talking about this very particular holiday called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It was unique. And the way that they did the process of that particular day in the offerings was also different than how they did the other ones. It was the one day of the year 
And by the way, it's Leviticus 16. You can make a note and look at that later. It's very detailed. It was the one day of the year where the high priest, and only the high priest, was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, right? The remember Raiders of the Lost Ark? And the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, and it was kind of strange. He would bring blood. He would bring this blood of this animal that was sacrificed, and he would sprinkle the blood on the ark. It was called the mercy seat. And it was very symbolic, the, the blood of an innocent uh, sacrifice to cover the sins of the nation. The other offerings, when they would sacrifice the animal, sometimes it would go up on the brazen altar. All of it or some of it was burned. But not, not for Yom Kippur. On the Day of Atonement, the bodies of those animals weren't brought in. They, they were brought out. They were burned outside of the camp for the tabernacle, outside of the gate for the temple. In fact, there are several animals that were involved. One of them even was let go alive. They'd pray and confess sins, and they would let it go alive. It was a goat, and they would let it go into the wilderness, and they'd chase it away. And Or today, even in English, we use the term scapegoat. That's where that comes from. But the writer tells us, you remember all that's happened? The reader would be tracking, he says, verse 12, therefore Jesus also. He fills in the, the picture for us. That, that's a symbol. That represents what Christ did. That Jesus also, he sanctified the people with his own blood. And guess what? Here's the parallel. He suffered outside the gate. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at part of this when Jesus was tried, beaten, suffered for you and for me, crucified on a cross. And Good Friday, what makes Good Friday so good? Of course, he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave to demonstrate who he claimed to be, fulfillment of prophecy. But all through the, the Bible, we're told of these sacrifices. You get to the New Testament, and even John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Peter says, for Christ is our Passover lamb. The writer of Hebrews tells us very plainly, it is Jesus. He is the, our atonement. He is the sacrifice. He is the one who gave his life, his blood, for you and for me. And he suffered outside the camp. You know the account? Jesus was beaten in a place called the Praetorium. And then they made him carry the cross and they went outside of the city walls. And he was crucified. He was nailed to a cross, a Roman torture device, outside of the city walls. It was a place where uh, it was a, a high traffic area. And on purpose, the Romans not only wanted to uh, prolong the pain of death, but also to uh, add humility and shame to a person dying, to embarrass them in their death. And so crosses 
were designed to be a spectacle of reproach. Essentially, we'd say our, our altar today is the cross of Christ. It's the place where payment was made for us. But really, spiritually speaking, you know, it's anywhere. To me, the imagery of, of the blood of the sacrifice on the Ark of the Covenant that represented atonement for the sins, the picture of Christ, His blood given for you and for me, we've been atoned, cleansed and washed and freed from all guilt and shame. But also when Jesus died, we read about how His blood hit the ground. He bled from the cross. And that when that happened, I submit to you that, that all the world, if you will, became an altar for us. That now we are no longer relegated to a geographic location where we have to go someplace. But that anywhere, at any time, we can come before the Lord and worship and pray and seek and find forgiveness. Jesus tells Nicodemus, for God so loved the world, the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whomsoever believed on Jesus wouldn't perish, wouldn't die, but indeed would have everlasting life. And so what do we do? The author says, verse 14 or 13, let's go to him. That's where we go. We go to the Lord. For the Hebrews, it meant to leave a religious system, to go outside of the camp, outside of the walls, meant it's the old life. And the old life represented for them this, this rigid religion. And that might represent the same for you. A tradition, a religious system that you're raised up in. And God wants to bring us into a place of relationship. For others of us, our old life represents just sin. <laughs> Whatever enslaved us. And we've been set free from that. An invitation given to all of us that we can find forgiveness, find eternal life, found only in the person of Christ. But understand that when we go out, if you will, when we go out of that, we also come into the identity of Christ. We bear his reproach. Your friends and family, some of them won't like it. We too enter into a time of cancel culture, ridicule. Jesus says, the world's going to hate you because the world hated me. If you live for the Lord, then you're going to experience this. But the writer adds in, then, in a sense of encouragement, we get to remember, though, this isn't our home. We're not living for this life. He says in verse 14, we have no continuing city. The idea is we have no continuing city here. We're, we're seeking something better. We're looking forward to, we have the hope of heaven, the promise of eternal life. And so, yeah, it's going to get rocky and bumpy at times. We've talked about this before. Reminds me of, you know, I've told you before, I don't, I don't like flying. The older I get, the, the least I like, you know, my, my enjoyment of flying goes down. And so, turbulence, I just call it temporary. Temp turbulence is temporary. 
hassles of flying, checking in and doing all that stuff. I, I endure that to get to the destination. Nowadays, it's, you know, to see my kids on the other side of the pond and then carne asada burritos. Kids and then carne asada burritos. But we do so for the, the hope of heaven. We endure. We get through. We, we, we go through these life bumps. We don't just tolerate life. God wants us to have life abundant, not only in the life after, but now. And so what are we to do? There's an invitation, verse 15. Let's, by him, let us continually offer then the sacrifice of praise to God. And he explains, what, it, what is that? Well, it's the fruit of our lips, thanksgiving. And he adds, don't forget to do good and share. For all of those things, collectively, verse 16, for such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Can you think about what God has given us? What he offers to you today if you haven't received forgiveness. Life eternal. Knows that you and I are messed up, we're sinners. We've all fall short of the glory of God, but the gift of God is eternal life. And when we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says we'll be saved. And we can receive that gift. And you haven't, today you can. But, but what do we do in response to such a gift? Like, what, what do we give God in return? What, what, what would please the Lord? What would bless God? Listen, we don't have to guess. This verse tells us our adoration, our thanksgiving, our worship, the sincerity of our words and, the, and our actions. Notice the writer adds very two important qualifiers, an adverb continually, and that means we're to do it all the time. It's a you know, worship isn't just something we do. It isn't just, oh, on Sundays, let's do this. It should be part of our lifestyle. But it is something we should be doing. The fruit of our lips, giving thanks to God and praise to the Lord and, you know, and, and words of adoration and gratitude. And of course, we do that ordained in a way that we come together and we sing. And I mean, it's just, it's a preview of heaven. Guess what? When we get to heaven, we're going to be singing praises to God. And so this is, this is a good practice for us. The other important word we note is that it's a sacrifice. And the question is, is it a sacrifice? Because if you're like me, sometimes my evaluation of uh, spiritual disciplines is, ah, is that convenient for me? Is that comfortable does that compete with my other things I want to do? And yet the Lord says, the Scripture says, oh, it, it should be a sacrifice. And sometimes it is. And when it is, listen, God's blessed by that. Now we shouldn't evaluate our time of worship and giving priority to the Word of God based upon whether it's comfortable, whether it's convenient. So the invitation for us and the challenge for us is to praise God for everything we experience. Praise God for the green lights. Praise God, praise God that we were able to come today. Praise God that 
masks are going away. <laughs> Praise God that Rick isn't going over too much. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, God's love language isn't just words, though. It's acts of service. It's kindness. Do good and share. Sometimes doing those things is an inconvenience. <laughs> it doesn't quite fit your schedule, your preferences. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a sacrifice as well. You know, what, what good thing is God asking you to do? What sacrifice is the Lord asking you to, to make and share on his behalf? To realize he'll be well pleased. That you get to bless him if you do that. All right, verse 17, we'll close here. He comes back to where he began. Obey those who rule over you. Be submissive for they watch out for your souls as those who give an account. And he says, and let them do that with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So the author comes back to basically the same thought where he began, and he adds some little extra things. And this really doesn't work if we don't understand where authority comes from, right? Romans 13. Ultimately, really from the Lord. It's not necessarily derived just by position, by power. Our, our obedience and submission should be rooted in God, you know, a love of God and a respect for the Lord. Then a willingness to yield to those who love God and who then are serving us on behalf of God. But you know, the charge that, that our pastors hold is a high calling and commission. And one that's very sobering. And I realize, again, it seems a little odd because I, in terms of my role and responsibilities that I have, this is me. But I, I understand that one day I'm going to stand before God. And, and I'm not only going to give an account for my own life, whether I, I stopped for the golf cart people or not, or the jokes I told, the things I watched, how I loved and led my wife and my family. I'm going to give an account, and so will you. Well, you don't have a good account for my family, but you know, for yourself. But I'm also, I'm also going to give an account of how I loved and led you. Of what I did with God's bride. How I honored you and loved and fed and cared for you. Of how I tended as an under-shepherd to God's flock. Where was your well-being in my mind? I'm going to stand before the Lord and give an account for that. that that's very sobering. See, our, our spiritual leaders will must give an account. They, they carry this extra burden. So what's our part in that then? Well, it's to support. It's to heed. It's to, if I can say it this way, it's don't be a pain for your pastor, but be a partner. To, to be a, sor a source of joy and support for our spiritual leaders. If I were to write this, I would just say, hey, don't be a pain. Make tres leches cake, you know, and pray for me, you know. <laughs> But we have a responsibility. We, we partner in prayer and we partner in support. We, we want to be, well, to do so and be a joy giver. 
And it seems to me that this verse has a kind of a built-in promise if we do that. If we seek to honor and bless God's servants, well, God will bless us too. And if we don't seek to do that, he says, it would be unprofitable for you. And I'm really curious, like, how? Your teeth will fall out. That, you know, I don't, I don't know how. He doesn't tell us how. You remember that scene in the Old Testament when Elisha takes Elijah's mantle and he becomes, he's going to be a prophet of the Lord, and all of a sudden there's this other group, and when they see Elisha, they start teasing him. And they start to mock him. They're like, oh, look at you, baldy. Go up, baldy. And the Bible says that God sent these bears to go and maul the people that were being mean to him. Because they called him baldy. Just saying. Just saying. I don't know how it will be unprofitable. I, I, personally, I don't want to find out. All right. We'll pause there. Oh, there's no bell yet. Let's pray. Lord, you're so good. We come to the scripture and realize that you've ordained uh, leadership for your church. And, and we are called to honor and respect those who have the responsibility and the accountability to teach the word. Where we want to support and follow and pray and be a source of joy for them. But Lord, we also want to put them on pedestals where they don't belong. God, help us to be wise and watchful. Help us to esteem with evaluation their conduct and character too. And God, ultimately we realize that Jesus is our senior pastor. Jesus is the head of this church. Churches will change and pastors will change and things will change, but Jesus, you never change. You're always faithful. You're always available. God, we pray that you'd help us not to be swayed and suckered into strange teachings. That we be those who esteem your word in the person of Christ. And Lord, to be those who worship you, not, not just on Sunday mornings, but to be part of our lifestyle. To be continually thanking you, continually worshiping you, continually doing good and, and, and being a blessing to others. And when we do that, Lord, it pleases you. And in the context then of those who have mentored us, discipled us, who have taught us, Lord, may we honor them. That we would be a blessing and not a burden. We love you. We praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. I pray that you have an amazing rest of the day. I think it's spring break for most.